0: Hey guys, Pastor Jeremy here. I just wanted to take a minute and welcome you, and thank you for joining us here. We're so excited you're able to join us online, and we are thankful we can offer this opportunity. My prayer for you is that you are encouraged and challenged during your time with us as we worship the Lord together. We are so glad you're here with us, and I hope you come ready to encounter God through His Word. Blessings.
1: Today's scripture is from Mark 5, 24b, 24 b knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease.
0: Heavenly Father, God, in these next few moments as we open your word, Lord, I am aware, even personally, God, that Often we come into this place and we carry the issues of our life, the issues of the day, things that we cannot get off of our mind, things that we cannot get off of our heart, things that distract us, that the enemy would use to draw our minds away from what we are to focus on. And God, I pray that we would recognize that it is dismissive of us to simply say... Let's ignore all those for a little while. The scripture, Lord, in your word, you never tell us to simply ignore things or to push them away. But we are instructed to take all of our cares and lay them down at your feet because you care for us. So, God, I pray in this moment and in these next few moments, Lord, that we would take all of those cares, all of those burdens... We would lay them down at your feet. You would grant us peace of mind, clarity of thought, and an openness of heart to receive the truth you have for us this morning. And Lord, we did not simply come to this place to worship. But God, I pray that we would leave this place in a spirit of worship. Move our hearts this morning, God. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And we're going to jump right into this text this morning. Um, As you can imagine, as you can tell, this is very much a Father's Day text. I do not, um, generally speaking, I don't really... I'll just let you know this ahead of time. Um, I don't generally ascribe to um, the, the, the calendar when it comes to preaching. Um, I tend to just preach the next passage in, in whatever we're in. And so uh, that tends to be where we are, except for a few occasions. And so this morning, well, we continue our series um, on Jesus Christ, the Sovereign Lord. And we're in Mark chapter 5, as you heard Brother Johnny read just a moment ago. Um, a passage, but, but I, I want to be really clear because if you've been here the last several weeks, you may notice that we skipped a few verses. Uh, we skipped a few verses because this morning's story is, if you will, a story within a story or a miracle within a miracle. And because it falls that way, what we're going to do is we have to split this story into two. We're going to look at the story of of this this, uh, brave woman this morning and then next week we will look at the entirety of the story of Jairus and the healing of his daughter. So as we look at this, I want to actually take your attention, draw your attention back to verse 21 of chapter 5. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And so this story, the reason I share those few verses is we have to understand what's going on. You remember a few weeks ago, uh, the very first story that we looked at. Uh, Jesus had been teaching uh, all day by the Sea of Galilee, and as he was teaching, the people began to press in on him to the point that he had no room uh, to to speak, no room to teach. And so uh, the disciples had their boats there. And so Jesus asked them if he could, if they would step in, he said, Would you please pull away from shore just a little bit? So they pulled away from shore just a little bit. Jesus continued to teach until night fell. And when night fell, he looked at them and he said, Hey, let's go on to the other side of the sea. And while they went to the other side, he laid down in the stern of the boat on a pillow and went to sleep. And it's a very familiar story. Remember that uh, as they were going at night, uh, a huge storm blew up on the Sea of Galilee, uh, so much so that the disciples were terribly afraid. And they cried out to Christ uh, Jesus and they said, Do you not care that we are all going to die? And Jesus, of course, stood up. And he, he rebuked the wind and he spoke to the sea. And the sea and the wind became like glass, calm. And then it says that the disciples, after he said, uh, Do you still have no faith? The disciples looked at him and they were greatly afraid. And they said, Who is this then that even the winds and the seas obey him? All right, so we end, this story, we end that story with the disciples in great fear. So then they continue on with their trip across to the other side of the sea. They get to the other side of the sea, and Mark tells us that as he gets out of the boat, he is immediately met by a man, we looked at last week, by a man who is filled with a legion of demons known as the Gadarean or the Gerasene demoniac. And so as he meets him, it says that he saw Jesus from far off. He ran, he fell down on his face, and he pled with him, and he said, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And so he worshipped Jesus. He fell on his face before him. And as he did this, um, he pled with him, Please don't send us away. Don't torment us before our time. And so he said, Please, let let, let us go into this herd of pigs. And so Jesus said, Go. And the demons left this man, went in a herd of pigs, ran over to the side. And the people ran into the city. The herdsmen, rather, ran into the city, told everybody what had happened. They came out, and when they saw this demon-possessed man who was out of control... Seated, clothed, and in his right mind, it says that the people were greatly afraid. And so they pled with Jesus to leave their region. So Jesus and his disciples get in the boats and they go back across the sea. You notice that so far in these two stories, the end of it, somebody is overwhelmingly afraid after experiencing the power of God. Um, The disciples were overwhelmingly afraid and said, Who is this that even the winds and seas obey him? And the the townspeople are overwhelmingly afraid when they see this man has been healed from a legion of demons and they pled with Jesus to leave. And in this story we will find that it is an extremely similar circumstance. Circumstance. Now, there are five people really in, in this story, and I know I, I ask you to do this often, but I really want us to do this when it comes to narrative, especially in scripture. I want us to, to enter into this story. I want us to imagine what it's like. There are five people in this story or, or groups of people in this story. First, Jesus is in this story. Jairus, the, the temple leader, and we'll talk about more next week, but he's in this story. The disciples are in this story. The crowds are in this story, and the woman with the issue of blood is in this story. There are five people that are spoken of in this story, and each one of them has a different perspective in what is happening. And when we look at this story, what we will find this morning is that our Savior is the sovereign Lord over the physical world. We already saw that he was the sovereign Lord over creation And last week we saw that he was sovereign Lord over the spiritual world. And now, this morning, we will see that he is, in fact, sovereign Lord over the physical world. And so, now, as we pick up this story and what's happening, and it's important to understand, that's why I read this. Jesus gets off the boat, and when he gets off the boat, he is met by a man named Jairus. Jairus is a temple leader. Um, a synagogue, a leader of the synagogue, and so when Jairus gets off the boat or when Jesus gets off the boat, Jairus meets him and he begins to plead with him. now you I want you to imagine on father's day uh, of, of all days imagine where this man is at his daughter, and it says his little daughter so this, this is a little girl we don 't know how old exactly from this passage, but a little girl he comes and he pleads with Jesus because his daughter is Ill, but not just a little ill. She is ill to the point that if something doesn't happen, if if no one intervenes, she is going to die. And this father, um, no doubt, has heard stories, uh, maybe has even seen certain miracles, but he has heard stories. And so he comes to Jesus, directly to Jesus, and he pleads with him. And you can imagine uh, the, the sound of this man's voice as he's pleading with Jesus to come and save his little girl. His little girl is dying and he says Jesus if you will just come with me and heal her I know that if you do she will not die. So this man's issue is urgent. He 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 needs Jesus to get to his house quickly. We'll see why next week, I don't want to spoil it, but he needs Jesus to get to his house quickly, very quickly. So it's as if you can imagine, he says, let's go. And of course, Jesus agrees to go. We see that from the passage later. And so there, he's, he's leading him that way. But what does it say in verse 24? In verse 24, it says, And a great crowd followed him, and the ESV uses a word we don't use very often, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Thronged about him. What this means is this. Again, get the picture in your mind. Jesus gets off the boat. Now, when he left... To go to the other side, he had to get in a boat and be pulled away from the shore just a little because the people were pressing in so, uh, so harshly. He got in a boat so that he could continue to teach. He fell asleep and, and basically was sleeping through a hurricane uh, because he was so exhausted. And the moment they come back across and step out of the boat, he is met by a crowd of people instantly. And they're not just standing there. They thronged about him. It, it literally means to press in almost to the point of crushing. Um, So there are people everywhere, and what are they doing? Why are these people following him? We find from the previous passages, uh, these people are following him because they want Jesus to heal people. They want food. They want miracles. They want to see all these amazing things, so they are pressing in and pressing in. And this man, Jairus, has to fight his way through the crowds to get to Jesus and say, I need you to come to my house now. My little girl is dying and Jesus agrees to go. So now they're making their way to Jairus' house. But imagine, this: it says there's a crowd pressing in on him so much that they're having to fight their way through it. People are pushing up against, even, as I said the word means, even to the point of crushing him in this crowd. In verse 25, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. Years. Now, I'll go ahead and say at the very beginning, it actually does not matter what that means specifically. Uh, not to the story. Um, we, you know, that one, there's no way for us to really know, but two, um, there's, it doesn't really matter to the story. Suffice it to say, she had an issue. We know she had a problem that was female in nature, um, and it was extremely terrible. She had this issue of blood for, or discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, that's a long time. That's a long time to have this problem. You say, okay, well, she's got a medical problem, and, and obviously it's, it's, not, um, it's not a comfortable one. Let's, let's be really clear here. Yes, she has a medical problem, but she has far more than that in a Jewish culture. Okay, In a Jewish culture, she has far more than just a medical problem. Without getting into all the details, if you want those details, you can go to Leviticus chapter 15. But suffice it to say that when this occurs um, normally uh, in in the Old Testament, Old Testament law, Judaic law, um, when this occurs normally, um, a woman was considered unclean during that period and then also for seven days after that. And so that meant ceremonially, that's a hard word to say, ceremonially unclean to the point that it meant she could not touch anything, she could not touch anyone, she could not be around anyone, she certainly could not go and, and, and worship in the temple or the synagogue. She was not allowed because she was, as it were, she was like a leper during that time. She was not allowed to touch anything nor be near anyone. She couldn't prepare food for anyone. She couldn't do anything like that because she was unclean. See, when you think about this, um, this woman would have been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. That means that she was physically and spiritually separated from worshiping God. She could not go into the temple. She couldn't go into the, uh, the, the synagogue. She couldn't do any of that. So she's both physically and spiritually separated from worshiping God and being around the people of God. She would have been physically and, and very possibly emotionally separated from her family because she would have made the home unclean. She would have made everyone else unclean. She would have been separated from... She would have had to go into the marketplace. We know this about lepers, but did you know... That because of this, when she went into the marketplace, before she went into the marketplace, she would have to say, unclean, unclean! So that everybody would move out of the way. Because if she touched anyone, they became ceremonially unclean. This is a, not just a physical ailment, this is a, this is a cultural issue for her. She has been separated from society. She can't, she can't be near people, she can't touch people. And it's not just for a small amount of time, this woman has been separated in all of these ways for over, for over 12 years. She is completely isolated and no doubt embarrassed because you can imagine when she goes into the marketplace or anywhere else for that matter and she has to say unclean, unclean, she's literally walking in and saying and having to say to everyone, I'm dirty, I'm filthy, I'm broken, you need to get out of the way. It would have been an horrible existence. So this is far more than just a medical problem that she has. And it says, not only was it a medical problem, not only had it caused cultural issues, not only had it caused spiritual issues, no doubt, or emotional issues. Look at what Mark says. It says in verse 26, And... She had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had. So now it's a financial issue, but also it's been physically taxing on her even to try to find a cure. It says that she suffered under the hands of physicians for many years, Uh, which just means this. They were, and you can imagine medicine in this this day and age, there there were cures in the Talmud for this kind of problem. What they told her to do was they would take... They would take a like a goose egg or another large bird. They would take that egg. They would crack it. They would empty out the contents. They would crush up the the shell and then they would burn it. And when they would burn it, they would they would burn it. They would put it in a linen sack for one part of the year. They would put it in a woolen sack for another part of the year. And she was supposed to carry that around. The problem is, and I don't know if you've ever done this, it would be odd to do so. But if you took a goose egg and crushed it up into tiny powder and then burned it. It is absolutely horrific smelling. Okay, so that was one of the cures. She'd walk around um, carrying that. She tried all kinds of things, no doubt. She's suffering under the hands of physicians for 12 years. So now it's created a financial problem. It's created a financial issue for her. Whether she was poor or she was wealthy, we know one thing. However she started out, she is now poor because she has spent everything she has to fix this issue. It's also funny to note... When you look at the parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke. Um, Luke uh, Mark says she suffered at the hands of physicians uh, or who had suffered much under ph- many physicians uh, for these 12 years. Uh, but Luke doesn't mention anything about physicians. Luke doesn't mention anything about physicians because Luke was a doctor. So it would kind of be silly for him to say she suffered under the care of people like me for 12 years. So this is no doubt a problem for her. Not just physical, but spiritual, emotional, um, uh, cultural, uh, familial, financial. Every type of thing that could, could go wrong for her has gone wrong. And then look at the, the last phrase, which it just it means that she has now lost all hope. Can you imagine? She's been trying to find a cure for 12 years. She's hopeful that she could find something, but she's to the point that she's lost all hope because Mark tells us. It says, she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. No matter how hard she tried to fix it. No matter how hard other people tried to fix it, nothing made it better. She was only getting worse. This woman understood her brokenness. And see, when we approach the Lord, because He is sovereign... Because He is sovereign, we should be broken toward Him. We should be broken toward Him. This woman, we could use all kinds of words to describe what's going on in her life, to describe what's going on in her heart, but the truth is, if we were to boil it all down, we could use one word. She was broken. She was broken in every single way. So much so that she had to declare it. She had to walk into public spaces and declare to everyone her brokenness. And when we come before the Lord, oftentimes when you and I come before the Lord, we come before the Lord thinking in our pride, whatever problems we have, we can fix them. Whatever issues we have, we can fix them. We can handle them. Look what I have overcome. But see, when this woman dealing with her problem came before the Lord, she was broken. And when you and I come before the Lord, we do not get to come before the creator of the universe pridefully with with our chest stuck out and our head held up high saying, I can handle this on my own, and Lord, I'll let you know if I need a little bit of help. You know, when we come to the Lord, we don't come to the Lord, um, as, as one person said, that belief in the Lord is, is like a, a crutch for those who can't help it. Let me be really clear. Belief in the Lord is not like a crutch. Coming to the Lord is like being on life support. Okay? I don't need him to just help me make it through a door. I need him to help me wake up in the morning. I need him to help me take my very next breath. And every single thing that I have and every single thing that you have comes from him and him alone. Amen. And when you come before the Lord, you don't come before the Lord with your chest stuck out and your head held high. You come before the Lord broken. Why? Not because... Your sins have not been forgiven. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, they have, but in recognition of the fact that your sins have been forgiven. So you come before him broken, not because you have not been made whole, but because you recognize you did nothing to make yourself whole. He did it for you. We need him to fix us. We cannot fix ourselves. This woman recognized, she had tried 12 years Twelve years, used all of her finances and everything at her disposal for twelve years. She could not fix herself. You know this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you came to Him because you could not fix yourself. You could not make yourself right. And if you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, let let me help you understand this. You cannot make yourself right enough to be before the Lord. You cannot make yourself good enough. You cannot make yourself clean enough. You cannot make yourself whole enough to be able to stand before the righteous judge of the universe. So you come to him how? Not in pride and in arrogance. You come to him broken and humble. Because he's sovereign. We should be broken toward him. But not only that, but because he's sovereign... We should believe in him. Now, that sounds really basic. We said, well, of course I know I'm supposed to believe in him. But look, look at what happens here. In verse 27, it says, she had heard the reports. This is important. She didn't know Jesus. She hadn't met Jesus. She had simply heard about him. She had heard the reports of, of him and what he had done. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, in Luke chapter 8, verse 44, a parallel passage, it says that she touched the hem of his garment. That's where we get that from. So Luke tells us that. Well, the hem of his garment, actually, the translation, and you might have this in, in Luke, some translations use the word tassel, which sounds weird, but it's actually not. He's a Jewish rabbi. He wears an outward, uh, outer coat. He, he, he wears a prayer shawl, right? Which has what at the bottom of it? It has tassels at the bottom of it. So what is this woman doing? She's reaching for the hem of his garment for his tassels. Now, we read that and go right past it. But I want, again, enter into the story for a minute. Jairus is pulling Jesus, as it were. I mean, I don't know that he physically is. But he's getting Jesus to go to his house. They're pressing through this crowd that's crushing in upon him. This woman who's supposed to declare unclean, unclean anywhere she goes, it says very clearly, what does it say? It says, and she came up behind him. Why? She's sneaking up. Okay? She's not doing this out in the open. Does she at any point in this story declare herself to be unclean in front of everyone? She doesn't. She stays quiet. What is she doing at this point? She is violating ceremonial Jewish law. She should say, unclean, unclean, but she doesn't. And then she she says, if if I could just just touch his garment. Verse 28. If I could touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, get the picture. They're pressing through this crowd. They're headed toward Jairus' house. Pretty intent, right, to go there to save this little girl. And as they're headed that direction, this woman who has this medical issue um, and and all kinds of other issues uh, that go along with it. She's got this problem, and she's supposed to say unclean, but she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Where is this woman? She is on her hands and knees in the dirt. You don't touch the hem of somebody's garment standing up straight. You can't get down and touch the tassels of a rabbi's cloak when you're standing up straight. She is on her hands and knees pressing her way through just to touch the bottom of the hem of his garment. This woman is... She, I mean, she's went through 12 years of being humiliated and debased and reviled and all these other things. So at this point, she, where is she? She is at the lowest point of her life. She is crawling through the dirt to touch the hem of a rabbi's garment as he's walking away. And what does she say? She says, "If I could just touch even his garments, I will be made well." If I could tell, she, she's not considering, you know, Jairus, Jairus says, hey, I need you to come to my house and heal my daughter. This woman, this woman doesn't, she doesn't even want Jesus to acknowledge her necessarily. She just wants to touch the hem of his garment. That's it. She believes so strongly in who Jesus is and what she has heard about him that she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. But notice her faith. If I could touch his garment, I will be made well she does not say if I touch the hem of his garment I might be made well she believes strongly in who Jesus is and in what he can do for her verse 29 so she does this in verse 29 and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease So, in Mark, as we talked about, Mark loves the word immediately. He likes to let us know that immediately after Jesus got off the boat, he was met by the Gadarene demoniac. And immediately when when this woman touched him, she was healed. Right? So he just loves the word immediately, all through the book of Mark. And it says, the moment she's pressed her way in the dirt through this crowd and she touches the hem of his garment, it says immediately she knew in her body she was healed instantaneously. Now, did Jesus turn to her? Did Jesus make a big show of this in order to heal her or any of those things? No, he was simply walking to Jairus' house. And this woman just touched the bottom of his cloak. And she's healed immediately. (laughs) But then, in my mind, one of the coolest phrases in this entire story. It says in verse 30, And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately, that word again, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, this is a very interesting interaction. It says when the woman touched him, immediately she was healed. And then Jesus, perceiving that power had left him. That's an interesting thought. There's so much power surging and flowing through Jesus Christ that the moment this woman touches him, the moment she touches him, she is healed, and Jesus goes, Whoa. He knew instantly that something had happened. Now, of course, we know. Jesus knows exactly what happened. This is not saying he didn't understand. In fact, the way that it's phrased when Jesus turns around in verse 30 and says, Who touched my garments? He's not actually, it's a rhetorical thing, he's not actually asking a question in that sense. He's not saying, who touched my garments like I don't know. He's turning around and saying, hey, someone touched my garments. Show yourself. Show yourself. Now we've got this tense moment again in the story. This woman that certainly people around, at least some, would have known who she was because they've heard her scream unclean, unclean. They know who this woman is. And she has crawled through that crowd, no doubt touching numerous people and making them ceremonially unclean. Then, the height of all violations, she didn't touch just anybody, she touched a rabbi. She touched a rabbi and she made him ceremonially unclean. The moment she touched him, now she's been healed. But Jesus, she was hoping, I'll just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. He goes on about his business, everything's good. No one's the wiser. Except Jesus turns around and says, Okay, show yourself. The person who touched the hem of my garment, I want you to show yourself. This woman, when she looked at Jesus, there must have been a difference in the way she touched him. Did you notice that in the story? What does it say in verse 24? And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There were people everywhere pushing in on Jesus. There were people everywhere touching Jesus. He's pushing through a crowd. There are people touching him. Heal me, Jesus. Give me food, Jesus. Do this, Jesus. And there are people touching him. But somehow or another, with all these people touching him, this woman touches the hem of his garment. Not even his leg or something like that that he could feel. But the moment she touched the hem of his garment, he he felt the power leave him and he knew that someone had touched him. What's the difference between the way... That everyone else was touching Jesus and the way this woman touched Jesus. It's found, the the first hint of it is found in something she says. In verse 28... She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. What was the difference between the way she touched Jesus and the way everybody else was touching Jesus? See, everybody else was touching Jesus because they wanted something from him. Everybody else was touching Jesus because of something they could get. This woman touched Jesus believing in who he was and what he could do. What's the difference between the way she touched him and the way everybody else did? It was faith. It was faith. See, when we come to Jesus Christ, we have to believe. Being around the things of God, coming to church, knowing some things about Jesus, let me tell you, it is simply not enough. See, everybody else there knew some things about Jesus. They had seen, in fact, no doubt, Jesus perform miracles and they had certainly heard his teaching just the day before see, they were around Jesus because of what they could get from him. This woman believed in Jesus. She had heard the reports, and she was literally, I mean, it is possible, literally willing to put her life on the line. Why? Because of her ceremonial uncleanness and touching all these people, and then having the gall to touch a rabbi, they were well within their Old Testament right to drag her out in the street and stone her to death. She was taking her entire life into her hands because of what? Because she believed that Jesus could do what he said he could do. And she believed in who he was. See, you and I need to believe in him. It's not enough to just know about him. We have to believe in him. This means to trust, as you've heard me say before, to trust in who he says he is and also in what he can do and what he has done for you. See, when we're broken before him, And we come to him in faith, believing. We are coming before the all-powerful, sovereign king. And because he's sovereign, we should bow before him. It says in verse 31, And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? I find this interesting because yet again, you notice these guys are are being portrayed a specific way. On the boat, they have seen Jesus, of course, they've heard him teach, they've seen him perform miracles already, and then he calms the storm, and they say, who is this? And they're afraid. And then they see this man, Jesus, that they follow. They see him cast out a legion of demons from a man that no one could control. And they see this. The people of the area are terrified. They get back in the boat, go across the lake. They get out of the boat. They're walking through the crowds. The people have no idea who they're really dealing with. The woman touches him. He says, the power has left him. Who touched my garments? And his disciples turn and say, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Do you notice? This is not them asking a legitimate question. The disciples are not going, "Do do you want us to figure that out, Jesus? I mean, we can break up into a committee and try to determine who this is. Right? No. They're, in a sense, they're being sarcastic. They're turning around to the Lord of all creation and saying, Really? Do you see all these people? That's what they're saying. Do you see them all? They're pressing in on you and you ask us or whoever else that who touched your garments? Jesus, everybody is touching you. How are we supposed to know who you're talking about? What does this show us again? The disciples have absolutely no clue who Jesus is. None whatsoever. They saw the man calm the storm. They saw the man cast out a legion of demons. And they think he can't know that somebody touched him. I mean, I think it's a lot harder to calm the sea than to know that somebody grabbed your cloak. They just have no idea. They're oblivious to what's going on. Who else is oblivious in this moment? The crowd. The crowds, oblivious. they just want what they could get from Jesus. That's, that's what they want. They're oblivious to who he is. Who's the one person other than Jesus in this moment who knows exactly who Jesus is? It's a woman down in the dirt who knows exactly who Jesus is. She knows who he is because she comes to him with the right attitude, she comes to him in the right position because he is sovereign. We should bow before him. Look, look at verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in what? Came in fear. You notice that's the third time that's happened? When he calmed the storm, the disciples were afraid. When he healed the and demoniac, the townspeople were afraid. And now that this woman has been healed, she is afraid. Because they have all seen the power of God. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it says she came to him in fear and in trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What's the difference? Again, there's a difference. You know, everybody was touching him, but there must have been a difference in the way she touched him, right? It was faith. The disciples were afraid, but what was their next question? Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? They're they're afraid and they just don't understand. The townspeople are terrified and they ask him to leave. Why? Because they're afraid and they just don't understand. So their fear is accompanied by ignorance. The disciples' fear is accompanied by ignorance. This woman's fear is accompanied by faith. Why? Because the rest of them run away. They push Jesus away. They don't understand who he is. But this woman comes to Jesus. She comes to Jesus with fear and trembling because she recognized and realized who she was dealing with. She realized who she was dealing with. All the reports she had heard about Jesus, she realized it. And then it says this little phrase, don't, don't miss it. She was, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole story truth. The whole truth. She could have kept some of it back. She could have told him that she wasn't ceremonially unclean. She just wanted a little bit of help, so she touched it. But she told him everything. She told him everything. She told him him the whole truth about how she had heard the reports, how she had heard about who he was, and about what he had done, and about how she just decided to go for broke and crawl through this crowd, taking her life into her own hands to touch Jesus. She told him the whole truth. She fell down before him. Notice this. She's on... You, you realize that in all these stories, in a sense, everything is, uh, there are certain things or people who are brought to their knees or on their face. See, in the, healing, in the calming of the storm, the disciples didn't fall on their face, but you, you realize that by the sea and the wind listening to Jesus, they immediately responded. And then... When the Gadarean demoniac, even while he was still filled with the legion of demons, what did did they do? The demons fell down at his feet. When he was healed, what did he do? He fell down at Jesus' feet. Now this woman who's come to Jesus, she's down on the ground, she's healed. Then what does she do? When she comes to Jesus, she falls down on her face before Jesus. So why are you making such a big deal out of this? Do you know that every single time or most every time, that someone comes into the presence of the Lord in Scripture, they fall at their face. See, the Gadarean demoniac, of course, fell on his face. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lofty seated on a throne, and, and His robe filled the temple, and when the, the angels cried out, uh, it shook the foundations of the very temple, and it was filled with smoke. And then what did He do? He says He fell on His face before the Lord. When he saw the Lord seated on his throne, he fell on his face. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel saw the Lord seated on the throne. And you know what he did? He fell on his face before the God of all creation. In Revelation, in the book of Revelation, John, uh, the the apostle, saw uh, saw Jesus in his vision. It says, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face before him as though a dead man. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Daniel... I'm sorry, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then in the New Testament, the Gadarean demoniac and John and the book of Revelation, they all fall on their face before the Lord. Why is that so important? It's important because John 1 tells us that no man has seen the Father at any time. That means throughout history. No man has seen the Father at any time. So what does that mean? If no man has seen the Father at any time, you know what else John says? He says, no man has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten Son of God, He has explained Him to us. That means if anybody has seen God, they haven't seen the Father. They've seen Jesus. So when Isaiah fell on his face before the throne of God and said he saw the Lord high and lofty seated on a throne, who was he looking at? He was looking at the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. When Ezekiel saw the Lord Who did he see? He saw Jesus. So this woman falls before Jesus. Why? Because she's not standing before a Jewish rabbi. She's not standing in front of a Nazarene carpenter. She is standing before the sovereign Lord of all creation. She knows that. He knows that. But nobody else knows that. And when we come to him, we should bow before him. Why? Because what he has given, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what he has given you, hear me, what he has given you, you did not earn. What he has given you, you did not do enough to make it happen. What you have been given and your salvation in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what you have done and everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. So so what do we do? When we come before this sovereign Lord, we bow before him. And then, lastly, because he's sovereign, we should believe in his transforming power. One verse, a couple of words in this verse, but it's, I think, overwhelming. Think about this woman. She's been separated. She's been separated from society, really, from the synagogue, from all these things. And what does it say? And he said to her, daughter, daughter, a term of endearment. Um, This is the only time Jesus uses this phrase. He says, daughter, he looks at her, this woman who's been an outcast from society, this woman who's been put away from the synagogue, This all these things. And he looks at her and he says, daughter. Now, here's the most amazing phrase. Your faith has made you well. Now, why is this an amazing phrase? Very quickly, because the word that he uses here, when he says, your faith has made you well, if you have an older translation, your translation may say, daughter, your faith has saved you. You know why? Because the word that's used here is not the word for healing. It's the word salvation. Why is that so significant? Because look at what he says next. He said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well, it has saved you. Go in peace and be healed. So Jesus speaks to something. He doesn't say, Daughter, your faith. Has healed you. He says daughter. Your faith has saved you. And I healed you in the process. Do you see the distinction? He says daughter. Your belief in me. It didn't just fix your medical problem. It fixed your eternal problem. Jesus didn't just heal this woman's medical issue. He healed her eternal issue. When this woman came before him. She didn't have. A problem that no physician could heal physically. She did have a problem that no physician could heal physically. But her worst problem was that she was separated from God, and only the great physician can heal that. And so Jesus looked at her and said, Your faith, your faith has saved you. Brothers and sisters, the greatest miracle in this passage has nothing to do with this woman's medical problem. The greatest miracle to happen in this passage is that Jesus took a woman who was on her way to hell, and because of her faith, He saved her. And I, I know, I believe this. That Jesus, God is still in the healing business. I believe that. But this passage is not about physical healing. This passage is about the fact that if you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how low you have gone, how outcast you are, how far away from God you feel, how dark your soul may be, how dead your soul may be. I'm telling you now, if you come to Jesus in faith, He will save you. And He will make you whole. And He can do it. And He will do it. But you've got to come to Him the way this woman did. Broken, recognizing you can't fix yourself. Bowed down in humility before him. In faith, saying not just I've heard about him, but I believe in him and what he has done. And I believe that he can save me. And then trusting that he will transform your life. And if you're in here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you can He died for you and He rose for you. And if you will give your life to Him, He will save you. The sculptor grabs a lump of clay. As he creates, he's not told what to say. At his bench, he sits to begin, make, and form to his will, bend. Rounded here and curved there, the clay... ...is entirely unaware. Of what he is making, it can only muse. For at the sculptor's will alone, it moves. When complete, the artist stands back to see what he has done. A masterpiece of his will, this, his creation. For all of creation is his to bend and to move according to his word. For he is the Christ creation's sovereign lord believer what's the point for you and i this morning if you're a believer in jesus christ is simply this you and i never grow beyond the truth of the gospel we only grow deeper into it i appreciate now my salvation more than i ever have and because of that believer because Jesus Christ has saved you when you could not save yourself. Because he has made you whole when you could not be made whole by anyone else. When he has brought you to life when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Rejoice. For the sovereign Lord has saved you. And you can worship this morning. And we should. When we sing here in just a minute. We should sing at the top of our lungs. Because Jesus Christ. Christ is sovereign over creation, over the spiritual world, and over the physical world. We are so grateful you've spent the last several minutes with us, and I hope you were encouraged in your walk with Jesus Christ. If you're a member of another church, I pray that this experience would be supplemental to your fellowship and service in your local body. If you're not currently connected to a local church and you live in the Bowling Green area, we would love to welcome you in person at Eastwood at one of our campuses on Sunday at 9.30 or 11. You can find all the information you need on our website, www.eastwoodbc.org, or you can contact us to get answers to your questions. Again, I pray you were encouraged during your time with us. May you be richly blessed in Christ.